We are continuing our series, uh, Shadows, uh, studying the book of Hebrews. Um, I'm really glad you guys made it today. How many of you guys are glad you made it today? I mean, on so many different levels, like you guys didn't end up in a ditch somewhere. But I'm really glad you guys made it today because I'm really excited about this morning's text as we press in further in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And um, I think you're going to be blessed uh, by what we discover from the author. Um, but before we get into that, I, I want to remind you guys um, about uh, the text that we studied last week. Uh, the passage dealt directly with, with God's, God's father-like role over the family of God. I don't know how many of you guys remember it, but he, we were talking about in, in, uh, in, here in Hebrews chapter 12, the idea of the discipline that God gives. The emphasis w- was on how struggles, e- even persecution, is used by God to discipline, not punish, to discipline his children so that they might be strengthened in their faith. Verse 7 makes, makes this declaration. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He's talking here about the different struggles that the church, in, that the church at that time was enduring. And he was saying, listen, guys, th- there's sin that comes against you. There's persecution as a result of sin. You, 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 guys, you guys survive against that. And, and as you do, God is using that to discipline you and to perfect you. And in fact, it, it, it lead, the lead into this morning's text is this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. He takes us and he walks us through this idea that we are the family of God. God is our Father. And the circumstances we face in are disciplining us. They are training us. They are making us stronger for what is to come. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because the passage we're gonna, that we're going to look at moves directly from this idea that we can look at struggles against sin, even persecution that comes as a result of sin, as a means of making us stronger, as a, as a way by which we are, we are trained by it. In fact, that, that idea leads directly into this statement that we're going to read today. Therefore. See what I mean? See what I mean? I, I, you've heard me say this before, but whenever, whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for? Because what it's doing is it's saying, because of what I just said, because of what I just, what I just described to you, because of what I just, the declaration I just made, this is true. So what Hebrews is saying, the text we're going to get in today is that idea, what we just talked about, this idea of the God, God the Father, the family of God, disciplining us through the circumstances of our lives, is what's leading into directly what we're going to, what we're going to talk about this morning. And it's this. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it it may be defiled." That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it 
sought for it with tears. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that as we enter into to an exposition on your word, that our hearts and our minds would be open to your truth. That what would be heard here is not the words of a guy, but the words of the Holy Spirit that transforms us. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, a couple months ago, um, I had an experience in my home that honestly um, has become something that's not that uncommon. Uh, it, was, it was at night, and, and I was coming home from something from church. I don't, I don't remember if it was um, an elder meeting or a community group or, or something. And I, I had something going on, and the family was all at home. And so I came home a little bit later uh, after whatever my responsibilities were and came in, and the boys were in, in the living room watching TV, probably watching one of those, those, those stupid Minecraft videos that they, that they always watch. And then and, and Elise was downstairs on the couch folding laundry watching TV. So when I walked in the darkened room, uh, I can tell that she was, she was sniffing a little bit and had been crying. Um, and and now, now my initial response, um, always when my wife seems to be crying, is a, is a little bit of panic, trying to figure out what I did wrong <laughs> to cause this. Um, but eventually I realized um, that, that she was watching something on TV. See, see my wife is great. I, I, have, I have the most perfect wife in the world because she never makes me watch these girly shows. So what she always does is she, she like waits till I'm gone. So I've got something at night, I've got something going on. And so then she'll sit there and watch and she never, ever, ever tries to bring me into this so we can share those moments, you know? Um, so once I figured out that she was, she was, she was crying over some TV show, uh, I said, uh, watching Downton Abbey, are you? Um, cause that's, that's what the last time the situation occurred, that's the show she was watching. A show, by the way, I'm proud to say I've never watched more than seven minutes of, and that I refer to as that show with the guy from the Paddington Bear movie. He was much better in the movie than the show, if you ask me. But she said, but Lisa said, no, this is a new show she's watching. It's a show entitled, This Is Us. <laughs> she then proceeded uh, to explain to me the premise of the show, and, and I proceeded to tune her explanation out. <laughs> because honestly, I really don't care, even a little bit. So I don't know what the show is about. At all. Um, but as I was preparing this morning's message, uh, that incident, and specifically the title of this emotionally moving show, This Is Us, came to mind. Because when I read this morning's text, when I read this morning's passage, I couldn't help but think, This is us. I couldn't help but think, This is us, this, this, or This is what we should be. That the author of Hebrews is describing what we, the church, what we, the family of God, is supposed to be. As I read it, I thought, this is us. This is what we are called to be. This is what, what we are supposed to be. This is us. The entire passage 
established 
as the instrument of salvation and sanctification, and it was set up by Jesus from the very beginning. The church, the the corporately gathered, Christ-centered, organized body of Christ is what was established from the beginning to be the means of teaching, of discipling, of training, of praying, supporting and challenging, correcting and caring, of loving, of being Christ-embodying. It is not simply about us going and doing our own things, out there or in here. It is about the church being the instrument of Christ to train and to teach us. There has been this pitting between between churches being church-centric or being missional, but that is a false dichotomy. The call of believers is to go and the call of believers is to gather. Both of those things are true. And the reason for our gathering is to find a place of growth, is to find a place of discipleship, is to find a place of accountability in which we become more like Jesus together. To be missional means bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ into all areas of your lives and then bringing people through that into the fellowship of the body of Christ for their growth and development. This is the church. This is what we are to be and this is what we are to do. And that's why when I read this morning's text, I can't help but say, this is us. This is us. This is what us is supposed to be. This is, this is what, what we're supposed to be set up to be. This is us. You start at the beginning in, in verse 12. Now, now, when I read it, you guys might have noticed something. I, I, read, I read the text this morning uh, out of the New American Standard Bible instead of what I normally do in the ESV. And I did this because, for a reason, because the opening declaration... Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This, this is better expresses, in the, in, the, in the NAS, better expresses the original source than the ESV does. And this is an important distinction, I think, to make. In the ESV, it translates like this. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths of your feet. Now, if you read this as kind of a corporate your or a corporate you, meaning if you read it like the Hebrew author, the author of Hebrews is saying, you guys as the church, you guys as the church should do this, then, then you get on the right track. But I think the wording of the ESV lends itself back towards a more individualistic reading. And I don't think that's what's meant here. And the reason why I don't think it's meant here is because when you look at the original source, that's not what's meant. You see, what we just read here is actually a a quote. The author of Hebrews is taking this from Isaiah chapter 35. This is a a direct quote from Isaiah 35 that, that the author of Hebrews is bringing in and applying to the church. And it's specifically from verses 3 through 4, but I want to read for you guys uh, 1 through 4. Isaiah 35, 1 through 4. He writes and he says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly, rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, our God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The writer of Hebrews got, got his metaphor from Isaiah. The, the, the faithful in Israel had been through a lot. They had, they had many evil kings, some false prophets, generally disobedient and stubborn fellow Israelites. They had powerful enemies who threatened them. And, and there, seem, there was seemingly no prospect of ever living in their own land and living in peace. They were discouraged. They were despondent. They were ready to give up. And that sounds a lot like the Hebrew church, the, the, the Hebrew church that the author is writing to. They're facing this persecution. They're facing this struggle. And so he's writing to them in the same vein, in the same heart that Isaiah wrote to the nation of Israel. Because Isaiah was, was reminding the Israelites of the coming kingdom. When the, when the wilderness and the desert will be glad. When they will see the glory of God, the majesty of their God. And then he counsels them and he says this. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. Look, he's going to come and save you. In other words, what Isaiah was saying to the Israelites is he says, listen, when you look around you and you see fellow Israelites who are struggling, the ones who are weak, the ones who are hurting, encourage them. Lift them up. Tell them that God is coming, that victory is ahead, that he's going to save us. The emphasis of Hebrews 12, 12 is the same as that of Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. We are not told to strengthen our hands or our weak and feeble knees, but the hands and the knees, regardless of whose they are. In other words, we are not to concentrate on our own weaknesses, but to help strengthen other Christians in their weakness. He's saying, he's saying, church, look around you and see those who are weak. See those who are struggling. See those who are feeble. So, so first, this is us. This is us. We strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. This is what we do as the church. This opening is so vital to grasp because it lays the groundwork for the essential communal responsibility. We are not called to an individualistic Christian experience because we have been made responsible for the weakest among us. We have been made responsible for those who are struggling. This is our calling. And you know what else? That's all of us at some point. How many of you guys realize that the weakest among us is us <laughs> at some point? Every single one of us goes through periods of struggles and discouragement and questions and concerns. We all get weak at times. 
We all find ourselves at times needing the encouragement of brothers and sisters. We all find ourselves needing the prayers and love of brothers and sisters. And it is our responsibility to take care of one another. So undone by, by the love of the family, so, so driven by the love of the family, that when we see somebody who is weak, when we see somebody who is struggling, we have absolutely no compunction but to step in and help them. This is us. One of the greatest illustrations I could give you from the experience of my life was a friendship that my dad had. My dad had a good friend uh, named Bobby. Bobby and my dad grew up together um, from the time they were 12, 13 years of age. Uh, They used to run around together on the east side, mostly getting into trouble. In fact, uh, my dad and Bobby grew up and kind of became drinking, bu- drinking buddies. Um, my dad was an alcoholic, and my dad liked to party. And I remember all these pictures of my dad and Bobby at, at parties with a cigarette in one hand and a beer in the other. Well, when my dad got saved, um, he got delivered from alcoholism almost immediately. And so my mom, my mom was always had an issue with my dad kind of running with his old crowd again. And so the relationship between my dad and, and Bobby kind of, kind of drifted away. They'd see each other here on occasion, but they never would really hang out, um, hang out kind, of, kind of in social settings very often at all. Well, my dad got, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer when he was in his 50s. Uh, they found a chordoma tumor on his, on his fourth vertebrae. And they had to remove it and tear it out. It's, it's a long story, and it was a difficult time. Um, but I can tell you, one of the very first pe- persons to visit my dad at the Mayo Clinic um, was Bobby. And every step of the way in my dad's, um, my dad's fight, my dad's struggle, Bobby was there for him. Um, one particular, eventually my dad ended up in a wheelchair um, because of the, the treatments. And, and one particular um, uh, situation that, that I, was, I was blessed to be a part of was my dad, um, my dad signed up for a, for a fly-in fishing trip up in Canada. And, uh, and he, wanted, uh, he wanted his boys to go along, so he, so he said to my brother Joey and myself that, that he would pay for us to go. Joey likes fishing. I don't. He couldn't go, so I had to. Um, uh, but Bobby went too. And, and me and my dad and Bobby shared a cabin, and we'd get up every morning at whatever it was, 4.30 in the morning, for crying out loud, <laughs> to go sit in a boat for hours and hours on end. But one of the, but one of the most vivid memories I have of that trip was not a fish I caught. But I remember walking down the stairs down to the dock. My dad had we'd worked, maneuvered his, his wheelchair down. And I watched Bobby lift my dad out of his wheelchair and carry him into the boat so my dad could sit there and fish. Um, that night, I... Uh, 
I felt like I had to, uh, I felt like I had to thank him. And so I pulled him aside, and I, fighting back tears, and trying to say it as quickly as I could, I just said, Bobby, I got to thank you for being there for my dad. And I remember how he responded. I mean, he looked at me like, what are you talking about? And he said to me, Tommy, it's a privilege. He said, he's my brother. I love him with everything that's in me, and I would do anything he needs me to do for him. And it was amazing because I knew it was true. I knew that there was no burden in this, that there was, there was no fight in this, there was no struggle in this for him. He loved my dad so deeply. He was a brother to my dad. And to carry him when he was weakened was a privilege. You understand, this is us. This is the call of the church. We come to church too often and we've made it about ourselves and what I get out of this and what I receive out of this. And the call of the church is to strengthen those who are weak, to carry those who are hurting. This is us. The church is not about our own thing. It is not about what I get out of this. And it should go beyond the responsibility of it, but to be seen as a privilege to love people the way Christ loved us, to carry people the way Christ carries us every single day. Galatians 6 literally says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I want to remind you of the words of the author of Hebrews in chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Not neglecting to meet with one another, but encouraging one another. Those who are weak, those who are struggling, those who are in pain, it is not just our responsibility, but our privilege to carry them. Listen, we will all be weak at some point. And when we are, we must be vulnerable enough to receive encouragement. And we will all be strong at times. And we must be gracious enough to give encouragement. This is us. A family of God that sees their responsibility and embraces the privilege to carry those who cannot carry themselves. But I want you guys to remember something. The only way people will know you need encouragement or that you will know that someone needs encouragement is if you're engaged in their lives. Secondly, 
this is us. We pursue peace with all men for holiness' sake. The passage says this, Pursue peace with all men and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, when you read this, I want you guys to remember that this is the context of the church. This is, this is the context of us in the body of Christ. We pursue peace with all for holiness. This declaration provides, I think, this, 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 this powerful picture. And, I, and I, I'm trying to figure out the best way, to, the best way to, try and, to try and get us to understand this. So, this, this, this provides this powerful picture of what, what the tight package that the church is or, 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 or the, 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 a picture of, of this brought togetherness, this unit that we are. Um, it, it's, how do I explain it? Um, well, too often uh, the church is, is a lot like a sack of cats. Okay? But in that same way, we're all in this together, is what he's saying. See, see what, what we have is the idea of holiness, the idea of holiness, when we read holiness in Scripture, the, the literal understanding of it is, is set apart for a special purpose. In other words, that we're set apart for God's purposes. Whenever we talk about holiness, we, we emphasize so much like the do this and don't do that. We don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do this, we, we do do that. We always kind of emphasize kind of that, that living part. And that's a portion of the idea of holiness. But the idea is that we are set apart. It is this idea of separation from the world. It is, separate, it is this idea of separation to God, to be his church. It, it includes living a pure and holy, different, set apart from the world life. So the image here is of us, all, all separated out. For his purpose. This is what the church is, right? This is, this is him calling us out. He, 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 he reaches in and he pulls us out and he puts us here. And he, and, he, and he pulls you out and he puts you here. And he pulls you out and he puts you here. And he calls us out of the world. He calls us out of that. He separates us out. He makes us holy. You understand that, right? The agent of our holiness is not us. It's the work of Jesus Christ. He made us holy. He drew us out and he put us together here in this bag that we call the church. We're, we're, we're in this package together. We're in this unit together. This is, this is that, that, that separation, that holiness that we have. But too often, we live in this community, we live in this separation like a herd of cats. We, we gnaw and we scratch, we screech and we claw. And we create this fighting within ourselves, within this bag. And so the idea here is, guys, we are holy together, and so we must live in peace one with another. He says, we have been made holy together, now pursue peace with one another. He's saying, model the peace that God made between you and him, between each other. Because it is your holiness that has brought you together. Your called outness has brought you together. Now live in peace one with another. And I want you guys to hear the definition of the Greek word for peace here. The, the word is irene. 
And it means to join or bind together that which has been separated. It literally pictures the binding or joining together again of that which had been separated or divided. And, then it, and thus it sets it one again. It follows that, that peace is the opposite of division or dissension. The call here is, you have been called out. You have been made holy. You have been made the church. Live in peace as one. That the sin that separated you, not just from God, but from each other, has been eradicated by the work of Jesus Christ, and now you are one. The power of Christ to make to, the power of Christ at work to make us holy is meant to bind us together. I want you guys to understand this. I believe this with everything in my in my in my heart. There is no greater plan of, for reconciliation, racial or otherwise, than the uniting work of Jesus Christ for His church. What breaks it down is the understanding that Jesus Christ has made us one. That each one of us comes together under the, under the banner, under the understanding that nothing else matters but the work of Jesus Christ. His, His grace calls me to give grace. His forgiveness calls me to give forgiveness. His sacrifice calls me to sacrifice. That unites us. That pulls us together. His humility calls me to humility. It is the work of Jesus Christ that draws us together and unites us as the body. I want you to remember the words of Paul as he wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called, what? To one body. The, requ the requirement of the gospel is that we forgive. The requirement of the gospel is that we love. The requirement of the gospel is that we bring compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience to bear in this one body. It is the work of Christ. We are one body set apart for God's glory. We must do all that we can to live in peace, united by the fact that we are the called out ones by the work of Jesus Christ. But you've got to remember this. To live in peace, called out and holy for the purpose of God, means we're together. It means we engage with one another. A peace that unites requires community, not isolation. You cannot be united to a brother or sister in Christ in peace unless we're engaged with those brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, this is us. We see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God through bitterness or immorality. 
see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it may be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. What do we speak of here? What is, what is the author talking about here? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about accountability. What he's saying is this, is this is about a church that is full of people, fearless to challenge a brother or sister in sin, and a church full of people, both humble and desirous to live out Christ, that they're willing to receive accountability. This is one of the biggest reasons I think that we have embraced an individualistic Christian experience is because we don't want people in our lives, and we don't want to be in people's lives. We don't want people in our junk, and we don't want to be in people's junk. We, we love the idea that we can put on a nice outfit, we can show up on a Sunday morning, we can sit in the pews, we can sing wonderful songs, we can sit and hear a sermon that encourages us, we can get up and walk out the doors and live however the heck we want. And everyone thinks we're Christian. Anybody agree with that? We like this idea that we're siloed into ourselves and we can do whatever we want. And it's crazy to me because whenever we hear the word accountability, accountability has become this like negative. Whenever people say accountability, it, it, it sounds fearful or strident or who are you? Most people, if, if on the, uh, at, the, at, the very, at the very best, with the, they, they like the idea of accountability. But the moment you step into accountability, well, that's a little bit, right? And here's the reality. Accountability is a great thing if you want to be like Jesus. Accountability is a great thing. If, if your goal is to live a certain way, if your goal is to, is to be an example of Christ, to live like Christ, to, to grow in the image of Christ, accountability should not be something you run from, should not be something you fear. Accountability should be something that you reach out for, that you grasp for, that you try and find in your life. You, I mean, you should have accountability partners everywhere. But what we tend to do is we tend to go like, um, yeah, you know, I want accountability in my life, but I'm not sure if I can trust this and that, and maybe I could do that, and we could, I don't know. I'm just going to keep praying that it works out. You know what that usually means? It usually means you want to just stay where you are. It usually means, it usually means you want to be exactly what you are today, and you don't want to change. You don't want to be born in the image of Christ. You don't want to have a difference in your life. Listen, there's a reason I do not have a nutrition accountability partner. I mean, if I want a sloppy cheeseburger, I want to eat a sloppy cheeseburger. I don't want anybody getting on me about it. But this is the way we are in our sinful lives. This is the way we are in our Christian experience. We, accountability is this thing that we push against. And all I'm telling you, if you are pushing against accountability in the church, you need to check your spirit. Because most likely, you have a sin in your life that you don't want to let go of. Most likely, you have sin in your life that you like having in your life, and you don't want anyone to call you out on it. This is what this passage is talking about. 
See, we are, we are too willing to sell our birthright for a single meal. And the church needs to hold us accountable to that. You see, that's what the illustration he uses there. How many of you guys remember that story of Esau? Esau, who was the firstborn, who had a birthright. Now, the birthright, he's the firstborn, which basically means when his dad dies, he gets everything. He gets, he gets everything. So he's got a younger brother who was his twin. He's got a younger brother who, who was going to get nothing. Right? So Esau goes, in, goes into the forest. He goes hunting. He's been out there for a couple days. He's been working. He's really, really hungry. And he comes walking in, and he's coming in from the field, and he hasn't anything to eat. And his, and his, his, his brother Jacob, who was, who was kind, of a, uh, kind of a conniver kind of guy, had set up a fire just out there, and he'd gotten some meat, and he had made this little stew out there, and he was like, Wafting the smell of it to Esau, as Esau's coming in hungry. And Esau's like, oh, man, that smells good. What do you got there? Oh, stew. I got stew here. It is good. It's really good. You should have some. Ooh, could I have some? Uh, I mean, I did a lot of work here. I'll tell you what. I'll give you a bowl of stew. If you give me your entire inheritance. Now he could have walked like another couple hundred meters and grabbed a Snickers bar. Right? You know what he did? He sold his inheritance for that bowl of stew. Everything for that bowl of stew. And you know why Hebrews uses this illustration? Because we have a tendency to do the same thing. Do you know what our inheritance is? It is the redeemed work of Jesus Christ in our lives. It is the abiding peace. It is the joy that comes in him. It is the hope and the life that is found in Jesus Christ. And every single time we step into the world, somebody blows a little bit our way, and we engage in the sinfulness of that. We are willing to trade in the inheritance of what we have in Jesus Christ for that little meal of that sinfulness. This is the accountability that we are being called to. You need somebody to stand there and smack you on the side of the head and say, what are you doing? It's just stew. We have so much more waiting for us in the presence of Jesus Christ. What are you doing? This is what we are called to be. This is us. We all probably have heard the passage in James chapter 5 that calls us to confess our sins one to another. You guys heard that? James 5, confess your sins one to another. And there is, there is a vulnerability and a humility that is required to confess our sins one to another, isn't there? I mean, it, it's, it's visceral. You can feel it. If somebody says to you, brother, you need to confess your sins one to another, don't, don't you start running through the Rolodex of the sins in your life that nobody knows about and that you're fearful to tell somebody about? It requires of you such deep humility and vulnerability. But I want to read another passage to you. It's found in Galatians chapter 6. Because it speaks about confronting sin and it shows us that it requires just as much humility and just as much vulnerability. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. When we talk about humility within the context of the body of Christ, when we talk about vulnerability within the context of the body of Christ, we're not just talking about when we confess our sins, but it is also when we are challenging people in their sins. Nobody, 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 nobody here is spiritually better than anybody else. Nobody. None of us should think more highly of ourselves because when we do, we make ourselves very vulnerable to the very sin that we think we, we would never do. The body of Christ must be a group of people who are so humbled by the work of Jesus Christ that we are willing to be held accountable and we are willing to, have, to hold people accountable from a place of a broken heart. I've said this before. You've ne- you, you, you have never earned the right to confront somebody's sin until you've cried over their sin. Because you've seen how the sin in their lives is hurting them. How the sin in their lives is, is causing them damage. Not because you think you're better. Not because you think you've done it. You've done nothing. None of us in this room has done anything. Jesus Christ has done it all for us graciously and mercifully. This is us. The body is to be a group of people who come together and hold each other accountable to live out Christ. And we do it in humility and we do it in vulnerability so that God may be glorified. But once again, I want to remind you You cannot create the relationship that facilitates accountability unless you engage one another. Unless you build relationships one with another. All that I've been saying leads us directly to one church, one truth. The church cannot be something you attend. It must be something with which you engage. You do not attend a church. You are the church. Nothing can be lived out. This cannot be us if we have not purposed in our hearts that I will know my brothers and sisters. I will serve with my brothers and sisters. I will pray with my brothers and sisters. I will fellowship with my brothers and sisters. I will weep with my brothers and sisters. I will rejoice with my brothers and sisters. I will know my brothers and sisters, and I will engage in community and in relationship. This is why we push community groups. Because it is too easy on a Sunday morning to walk in here three minutes after the service service starts and walk out of here three minutes after it ends and, and the most you ever do is say hi to somebody, grab your bagel, drink a cup of coffee, and then walk out of here. And nobody knows what's going on in your life, and you know nothing of what's going on in other people's lives. And I'm telling you, you're not the church, if that's the life you live. It requires relationship. It requires knowing each other. Get involved in a community group. Get involved in a ministry. Get involved in the lives of the people around you. Because in so doing, 
this becomes us. But that's the only way it happens. I want to tell you guys something. There's one reason, one reason only that I'm a pastor. And it's because I believe in the church. I believe the hope for humanity, the hope for marriages, the hope for families, the hope for those who are broken, the hope for those who are in bondage, the hope for this world is the church. And I've dedicated my entire adult life, dedicated my life since I was 15 years of age, to wanting to see the church be the church in the lives of people around them. And I'm asking you to carry the same burden. I'm asking you to have that same conviction, to believe that the church is the hope for you and everyone around you. Engage yourself in the beauty that is God's church and see what could happen. But this is us.